Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. week, if you were with us, uh, was a, a long episode uh, that essentially was there to get Peter, the apostle, and uh, the reader of Acts, as they're following along with the story, to understand this one crucial point, that the God of Israel is not just for Israel, but for the entire world. The gospel is about to break through into the Gentile nations. But before that could happen, Peter had to be convinced that it should happen. And that's what we explored last week. And if if you'll recall, it all culminated with Peter, kind of left us hanging with, with Peter in a room full of Gentiles who say to him, okay, we're ready. We are ready to hear what you have to say to us. And now this week, Peter tells them what he has to say. What I just read in that New Testament reading is literally the first official gospel sermon preached to the world. The gospel has, in Acts thus far, been preached to the Jewish world, no doubt. But this is the first time it goes beyond Israel to the nations, of course, in its fullest form, in the explicit gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, and then countless times throughout the ages, it has obviously been repeated and it's made its way through the nations of the world to this very day. But this is the first. What an honor. I was struck by that this week. What an honor we have this morning to look at the first missionary sermon ever preached. And I think the best way to honor it is to not overcomplicate it, but to simply preach what Peter preaches in the passage. Perhaps some of you have never heard this message, or you've heard it before, but have never believed it. Maybe today's that day. May it be so. Many of you have heard this message that was first preached to these Gentiles. Many of you have heard this message countless times and have accepted this message as your only hope, but you need to hear it again. And the message is simple. Jesus is Lord of all the nations, which means all the nations must answer to him as Lord, but the nation's Lord has an offer to the nations. The greatest news ever proclaimed in any nation. Let's watch it preach for the first time in history this morning. I'm going to break it down into, Peter essentially does two things here in his sermon. A defense of his lordship and then the demand of his lordship. He's going to defend that Jesus is Lord, and then he's going to show the demand of what it means that Jesus is Lord. 
Let's start with his defense, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter admits that he gets it now. After last week, in that crazy vision that God gave him, he gets it. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to God. And then he begins to preach, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, God has sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, parentheses, he is Lord of all. I appreciate the fact that the ESV, your version may not do this. I appreciate that the ESV um, put he is Lord of all in parentheses because that actually does communicate Uh, the meaning of the Greek here in the passage. This is Peter's new qualifier to the gospel. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news, literally the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, but now that gospel has an important qualifier, and it's this, Jesus is Lord of all. No longer does he view his apostolic ministry as convincing Jews that Jesus is Lord, Now his mission is nothing short of convincing the world that Jesus is Lord. And so it all begins with the small group in Caesarea where Peter preaches that Jesus is Lord to a Gentile audience the first time and he begins with his apologetic, his defense. Lord of the nations is a big claim that needs to be defended. I think we can all admit that. So before he speaks to what it means to them that Jesus is Lord, he will defend why he is convinced that Jesus is Lord. And his defense is simple. I saw it. I saw his lordship with my own eyes. Verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee and after the baptism that John proclaimed, so um, Jesus is, is baptized by John in the Jordan, um, and this was kind of the commencing of his ministry, um, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. One of the most compelling and convincing arguments that Jesus is who he claimed to be is that he didn't claim to be it. He simply did it. And he did it publicly. Notice verse 37. Says, you yourselves know what happened throughout Judea. Well, they weren't in Judea, but they heard. Rumors of this Nazarene had spread throughout the ancient world. And they weren't rumors of what he was claiming as much as they were rumors of what he was doing. Verse 38, that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. A man claiming to be Lord of the nations is an enormous claim, but here is what is uniquely compelling about Jesus and only Jesus. Two things that baffle historians to this day at least baffle historians who do not call Jesus Lord. The public nature of his ministry combined with contemporary witness of his ministry. What do I mean? First, all that Jesus did was public. So there have been a lot of people with messianic claims of grandeur and even some who supposedly demonstrated messianic powers to back up those claims, but conveniently 
those demonstrations of power have always happened in private or among this supposed Messiah figure's closest family or friends, with the one historical exception of Jesus as an itinerant miracle worker before the audience of the ancient world, the one that all the ancient world is talking about, like we see in verse 37. But how do we know for certain that happened, right? That gets to the second compelling fact. When you combine the public ministry accompanied by contemporary witness. So Islam teaches that Muhammad uh, claims were likewise backed up by miraculous works. The problem, however, is that there is no contemporary evidence or testimony to that fact. About 150, 200 years later, after Muhammad's death, his followers began to claim and canonize these supposed miracles. And with and I mean this genuinely with respect to my Muslim friends, that's a tough case to make, historically speaking. But these words that we are studying this morning were written within a generation of Jesus himself. Not just this letter, but of course the multiple witness accounts that were circulated. Do you know how compelling that is? That the very people who could validate or invalidate these claims written in the New Testament were alive when the New Testament was written. So Jesus didn't leave the world any writings. He didn't need to. He left the world witnesses. He himself was his own proof and testimony for all the world to see and he let the world see it. Especially his consummate act of lordship. Continue on with verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So I guess he wasn't Lord after all, just a miracle worker. Well, not so fast. Verse 40, another, but God raised him from the dead that we see in Acts. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We saw him. We ate and drank with him, meaning we didn't see a vision. We didn't see a ghost. We saw Jesus of Nazareth risen bodily from the dead. I've taught and preached extensively on the historical case of the resurrection. So I won't take the time to review those arguments. You can uh, find them online, listen to them for yourself. But suffice to say here, the evidence is so overwhelming. The historical resurrection evidence is so overwhelming that to quote Harvard scholar Simon Greenleaf, it takes more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it does to believe it. My friends, Jesus is Lord. Not in some ethereal, detached, theoretical way, in a very real way, Jesus is Lord of the nations including this one, meaning Jesus isn't just Lord, Jesus is your Lord. You can deny that. You can ignore that. You can try to explain it away. You can do whatever you want with this massive historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth. You can do whatever you want. But eventually you're going to have to deal with that. Which leads me to my next point. Having seen the defense of his Lordship, let's look now at the demand of his Lordship. Verse 42, and he, that is Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living 
and the dead. On an ultimate level, to be Lord is to be judge. If Jesus is Lord, then by definition, Jesus is the final arbiter of all things. To him alone belongs the final say. And so the demand of his lordship is that all must answer to him as Lord. And when I say all, I mean all. Peter says he, will, he has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. That's, that's their way of saying everyone. All shall give an account to Jesus because Jesus is Lord of all. So let me be clear and not hide behind nuance <laughs> this morning. Every story in this room, every story watching online, every story has the same ending, standing before Judge Jesus to give an account to your Lord. Now I say that fully recognizing I'm not allowed to say that in this culture. The idea of divine judgment, divine judgment day is anathema in our day. And yet every day, that same culture demands that it be true. I think the greatest cultural irony we are seeing is a rejection of a classic view of divine judgment while at the same time enacting merciless judgments. One wrong move, one wrong word, and you will be swiftly and irredeemably condemned and banished by the wrath of cancel culture. And yet that same culture turns around and says, God can't judge. Here's the dilemma you're going to run into when it comes to this idea of justice, okay? I have yet to meet anyone who has a problem judging when they are the ones who have been wronged. If I am lied to, stolen from, betrayed, cheated, harmed, heck, if someone cuts me off in traffic, I am unable to suppress this demand for justice. But here's the problem, according to Paul in Romans 2. The moment I admit justice, at the same time I condemn myself. Because if I want justice when I'm lied to, then I must immediately ask, have I lied? If I get angry when someone hurts me, then I must immediately ask, have I hurt others? You can't have it both ways, culture. You can't have an existence where you demand right and wrong and yet demand exemption from that same existence. Either justice is a thing or it's not. If it's not, then quit acting like it is, which is impossible, but you can give it a try. If it is, then quit demanding to be the exemption. The reality, of course, is that justice is real. The intrinsic demand you have for it testifies that this is so because you were made in the image of God who is just and will judge just like you judge. Only his is with a perfect righteous standard. So when Peter says that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, he is saying that Jesus is the one who has been appointed to ultimately do what every single one of us demands on a daily basis. Now, 
I've got good news and bad news when it comes to justice this morning. Here's the good news. No wrong of this evil world will go unaddressed. I want you to consider the justice of Jesus as a hopeful, even beautiful thing. I know that goes against our instincts in our culture. I want you to consider it as a beautiful thing. Your demand for justice is not wrong. Of course, we do judge. Uh, We don't judge righteously because we're sinful judges who make sinful judgments. But the impulse is a very, very noble thing. This world is filled with evil, dark, painful, abusive, oppressive, violent, exploitive, cruel, unjust acts. It's all around us. And it should anger you. And you should want injustice to be met with the justice it deserves. Well, I have good news for you this morning. It shall. No one, in the end, will get away with evil. Why do the wicked keep prospering, begs the psalmist to God. They have no pains. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked. They always eat at ease as they increase in riches. And then the psalmist says, when I try to understand the prosperity of the wicked, when I try to understand this, it seems to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. Discerning their end... Was, was the understanding and hope that he needed. And their end is in the front of the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, weak and wounded, bruised and battered by the evil of this world, take heart, the judgment of Jesus is the destiny of this world. I got some pushback for tweeting That no matter what happens in our our crazy, divided country in these dark days, Jesus is on his throne. And the pushback claimed that I was being insensitive to the very real problems and pains that people were facing. With this seemingly glib, Jesus is on his throne, everything's going to be okay response. My response is that nothing could be more sensitive to the evil conditions of our world then Jesus is on his throne. Don't tell the African slaves that Jesus on his throne is insensitive and glib because that's all they had to cling to as their Negro spirituals testify. All they had was King Jesus and the promise that their earthly masters would soon stand before their heavenly master. I'll never forget a desperate soul reaching out to me years ago doesn't go to our church. Uh, I was speaking at a conference and don't know her, haven't spoken to her since. She came up to me and wanted to share um, her story. She was the victim of some of the most horrific abuse I've ever, ha- I've ever heard of. And I got filled, when she told me this story, I got filled with just righteous anger. And said to her, where is this person? Let's go to the authorities. Or if you won't do that, at least let me go confront this person. For what he has done. 
And with her head held low and and downcast soul, she said to me, that's the problem. He lived a happy and prosperous life, long retirement, died in old age. He ruined my life, went on with his, and got away with it. Do you know what I said to her in response? I preached to her the good news of God's wrath. I said, lift up your head and listen to me very clearly. That evil man got away with nothing. He stood before the Lion of Judah and faced his righteous roar. And I kid you not, a smile came across her face, as it should. Brothers and sisters, the justice of Jesus is good news to this weary world. But here's the problem. The sobering dilemma. Like I said... We can't demand justice for the world and rejoice when justice is done while simultaneously asking to be the exception. So, for example, pornographers are evil. They bring evil into the world and they will one day pay for their exploitive and abusive content. But will you pay for consuming their content and giving their exploitation and abuse a hearty amen? You see, I know you've been lied to. Have you lied? I know you've been hurt by others. Have you hurt others? I know people have slandered your name. Have you slandered? I know people have taken advantage of you. Have you taken advantage of people? So here's the point. All unrighteousness will face the righteous judgment of Jesus, according to Peter here. The problem, however is that according to Paul, there is none righteous, not one. What are we to do? Peter has something to tell the Gentiles. Here we come to the ultimate message. Peter's announcing to the Gentile world, and that includes us. Yes, Jesus as Lord of the nations is judge of all nations, but let the nations be glad in this, your judge wants to forgive you. Verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The name of Jesus is above every name. That's what what it means to be Lord. His name is above every name, which means that every name will answer to his name. But that same name that enacts justice can also be the name that enacts forgiveness. Make no mistake, every injustice will be met with justice. There's no escaping that fundamental law of God's nature. But the message Peter has for the nations is this. The Lord who enacts judgment is the same Lord willing to receive his own judgment. Peter says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Don't read forgiveness of sins as indifference. As if Jesus will simply excuse our sins. As if they didn't happen. That cannot be. And as I said, you yourself don't want that to be. You testify this every day. No, someone will bear the justice. It can be you or it can be your substitute. Choose this day your judgment day. The one 2,000 years ago on Calvary's Hill, 
or the one that draws near with every fleeting breath? Which will it be? Jesus is Lord. There is no escaping that truth. The question is, what kind of Lord will he be to you? The Lord hanging on a tree, looking down upon the nations with forgiveness? Or the Lord seated upon his throne, looking down upon the nations with judgment? Which will he be? Why, in heaven's name, literally in heaven's name, why would you not receive the Lord upon the tree? If you have, if so, then hear me very well, you fearful saints. If so, your judgment day has already occurred. There's nothing left for you. Do not fear the day you stand before the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus will have nothing to judge for he himself has already been judged in your stead. Let the nations be glad. Let me pray. Lord, what you have done for us and what you have done for the world never gets old. We need it every day, including this day. And so let this table, which testifies to what our Lord has done, let this table feed us now in a way that a sermon can't feed us. Feed us with the assurance of your forgiveness and escape of judgment. Oh Lord, how can we preach this without begging that the nations indeed would be glad that you would send forth, raise up, laborers, missionaries throughout the world that can tell the world what Jesus has done. In your name we pray. Amen.